We're back in Acts. Turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, We'll be in chapter 17. Uh, Our text this morning is Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. But let's pray before we come to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Oh God, you have spoken to us your divine and saving words. Illumine the souls of us sinners to comprehend what is being read that we do not simply become hearers of your spiritual words, but doers of good deeds, true pursuers of faith, having a blameless life and a conduct without reproach in Christ our Lord, with whom you are blessed and glorified together with your all-holy and good and life-giving spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And when the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, fifth grade and below, come up and join me. Yeah, find a spot. Make sure you can see. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror to show us what he is like, to help us to know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a list of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll find out, most of the people in the Bible are not heroes at all. They make some 
big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a list of rules or a book of heroes. No, the Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You, you see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece of a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon, upon whom everything would depend. Now, we know who that baby is, right? Who is it? Jesus, that's right. And since everything, everything depends on Jesus, that is why Paul spoke the way that he did to those people that we just read about. He's telling the people in Thessalonica the good news of what God has done. He's telling them Jesus is that brave prince, that young hero. And how does he do that? He goes back to the Bible. He's talking to them from the Old Testament, helping them understand the thing that they were having a hard time understanding. Because they were saying, wait, wait, the hero of the story dies and then comes back from the dead? Come on, that can't be right. That, that's not like any story that we've ever heard. But remember, this beautiful story wasn't made up by people. It was written and revealed by God himself. So we ought to expect a few surprises like that. And that the hero would conquer death by dying? That's a pretty big one. But we know that's what Jesus did. He had to suffer and die and rise again in order for the whole rescue plan to work. For you and me today, we need to learn from Paul that when it comes to knowing the truth about who God is and who people are and, and what God has done to fix this broken world, the only place for us to go is the Bible. It's the only place where we learn the story about King Jesus, who came and died and rose again, not to save some innocent princess, but to save his enemies and turn them into his beautiful bride. It's the only place where we learn how to enjoy life as the bride of Jesus today. This story might not be the one that we expect. It is different than how we would have written it. But because this story is true, that's another reason we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat.
as Sam said, we are back in Acts. <laughs> uh, we have been for the last several months uh, exploring uh, the, the doctrines which are rooted in that story, the, the doctrines of salvation, uh, the person and work of the Savior, uh, the, the benefits of the salvation that he has accomplished and the application of that salvation to his elect people. And now we are returning uh, to the book of Acts that actually launched us into that study because here in the book of Acts we see the, the first phase of the ministry to take that good news to the ends of the earth. We're, we're actually picking up here uh, in the middle of what is referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. And so before we dive in, since it's been quite a while, I want to uh, just briefly take you back and remind you uh, where we are in the story of the book of Acts. And obviously our, our main character here uh, in Acts 17 is the Apostle Paul. But you'll remember that the first time that we met the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, we, we met him not as a minister of the gospel, but as an enemy of the gospel. The first time we see him is when he is holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. But it is in that ministry of oppression and persecution that, that Jesus comes to meet the Apostle Paul. He meets him on the road to Damascus, even as he is on his way to arrest the followers of the way that uh, he knows he will find there. And Jesus knocks him off his horse uh, and, and calls him into ministry, calls him to be uh, his servant in the, the proclamation of this gospel, even to the ends of the earth. And that call is culminated when the church in Antioch uh, meets and decides to send him and Barnabas on a missionary journey. We, we see this um, uh, after, we see this in uh, chapter 13, where we're told, now there were in the church in Antioch uh, prophets and, and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon and uh, Lucius and uh, Menean and, and some others, and then among them Saul, who is later to be called Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that moment was the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, a, a journey where he would go throughout uh, the, the surrounding area planting churches, a, a work that came to a conclusion at the end of chapter 14. We're told there at the very end, the very last paragraph of chapter 14, that then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. They were back home, and Paul, Luke tells us where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And so, so came to a conclusion Paul's first missionary uh, journey, but that missionary journey, because uh, it had involved a, a ministry to the Gentiles at God's direct instruction, to the Gentiles as Gentiles. It wasn't calling the Gentiles to convert to Judaism, but it was proclaiming salvation in Christ to the Gentiles as Gentiles. That caused some, some controversy. Uh, is, is this right? Can this possibly be true? If, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, how can Gentiles be saved in him without first becoming Jews? It was an important question in the early church. 
And there's a council that's called in Jerusalem. As all the apostles gather, and Paul and Barnabas come down from, from Antioch to Jerusalem to, to discuss this matter. And together, that council uh, affirms what Paul has been doing, affirms the, the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles and the promise of salvation to them even as Gentiles, apart from works of the law, apart from converting to Judaism. And so Paul's second missionary journey begins when uh, he is tasked with taking this message, this affirmation of the Jerusalem Council, back to the churches that he has planted and to, to proclaim to them the, 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 uh, the good news and to continue nurturing and building them up in the faith. You remember the, the journey began on a little bit of a sour note because uh, there was this disagreement between Barnabas uh, and Paul about whether or not to take John Mark with them. John Mark had been with them on the first journey, but he had abandoned uh, the team fairly early on. And Paul did not want to, to take John Mark with him on this second journey, but, but Barnabas did, and so they separated. But Barnabas taking John Mark and Paul at gathering together a new team that included Silas and, and Timothy and eventually even Luke, the author of the book of Acts. And so Paul begins this second missionary journey, and as he is going, he receives a call to go to Macedonia, to go into new territory. Remember the, the vision that he saw at night of the man from Macedonia calling him to come over. And so Paul submits to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and he and his team cross over into Macedonia, and there they, they first minister in Philippi, the, the first major city in this territory. And there we, we read several stories. We read of the, the conversion of, of Lydia. We, we read of the exorcism of a, of a demon out of this servant girl who made much money for, his, for the, her, her masters. And of course, we read of the the anger of her masters over that act of grace and the way that, that Paul and, and Silas were arrested and, and beaten and imprisoned. But then we see them bruised and, and bloodied singing in their stocks at midnight. And it's then that, that God acts miraculously through an earthquake to, to set them free from those bonds. But they decide not to escape, but rather to remain. And it is that decision to remain that so impresses the, the jailer that, uh, that he comes to them wondering, what must I do to have what you have? What must I do to be saved? And it was that question of the jailer that led us into our uh, prolonged discussion of the doctrine of salvation. But you'll remember that, that after that, after the jailer's conversion, the, the authorities there who had arrested Paul and, and beaten him and put him in stocks, they, they wanted him just to go away. And they, they offered to release him if he would just leave Philippi. But, but Paul demanded a public release. Why? Not because he wanted to humiliate those authorities, but because he wanted to protect the church there in Philippi. He knew that he had been wrongly accused, and he knew that, that the accusation against him would, would bring uh, persecution and, and oppression against the, the church if he didn't bring it to light. And so he made clear to the authorities there uh, in Philippi that he was no enemy of the state. But having received his public release, he decided to move on. It's what we see at the end of, of chapter 16. And we're told, so they went out from the prison. 
They visited Lydia, the, uh, the first convert they had there in Philippi. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that's where we're picking up the story. It's in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And what I want you to, to see this morning, as we, as we pick up this story, is, is I want us to see, and I want us to focus on, uh, the, the nature of Paul's ministry uh, as he moves on from Philippi. I, I want us first to, to focus on two strategic decisions that Paul makes in this ministry. The first is the decision to go to Thessalonica, and the second is the decision to once again go to the synagogue in Thessalonica to begin his ministry. And then, having noticed the, these strategic decisions, I then want us to, to focus on two aspects of Paul's actual ministry. What is it that he actually does when he goes to the synagogue? And, and what we'll see is exactly what Sam was uh, highlighting to the kids. We'll see that there he reasons with them from the scriptures, but he reasons to a very particular conclusion. He reasons to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. And I want us to focus on these aspects of Paul's work because I think they have a, a, a profound significance for us as a church, as a, as a congregation of, of Christ's church. As you, as you heard me say, our ministry is to make disciples. That's, that is the calling that we have received in Christ. That is our, our calling as a, a body, as a, as a collection of, of God's saints here in Cleveland. We exist as a church in order to, to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to do that work, we need to know how to do it. And I think we can learn how to do it from Paul and the way he goes about his gospel ministry. Obviously, we, we can't just uh, reproduce everything that Paul does in a, in a one-to-one sort of, of way. We don't have a synagogue to, to go to in the same way that he did. But we can learn what gospel ministry looks like. And that's what I want us to begin doing this morning uh, as we look here at Acts chapter 17. And so as I said, I want to begin first with the decision to go to Thessalonica. Because this is, this is significant. Again, notice what we read there in verse 1. Uh, at the very end of chapter 16, we're told that they departed Philippi. And now, when we're told, now when they had passed through... So that's interesting. Passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, now why are they passing through these these cities rather than than doing ministry there? Why are they set on getting to Thessalonica? It seems clear that that's the goal. They seem to have only spent a night in these these other places. Well, when you when you think about the geography of that place, which I know most of you aren't familiar with. But, but Thessalonica is about 100 miles from Philippi. 100 miles is, is not a, a quick trip, even in our day. And it was a, a three-day journey, at least, in their day. Three-day journey if you were, you were hustling. And so it seems that, that Paul is on his way to Thessalonica. He's stopping for the night in these, these smaller villages along the way. But his goal is to get to Thessalonica. Why? Why is, he, why is he pushing to get to Thessalonica? Why not, why not just slowly do ministry along the route? Well, I think it has something to do with the nature of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is actually the capital of Macedonia. Paul came to Philippi first because that's sort of the first significant city there on the coast of Macedonia. When he, when he crossed over into Macedonia, this was the, the first big city that he came to. And he, and he stopped there to, to do ministry. 
But he's now on his way to Thessalonica because this is the capital of the area. This is the capital of, of Macedonia. It's in another significant city in the area. And I want to suggest to you that, that Paul's decision to, to do ministry in the cities is an intentional, strategic decision. It's a, it's a decision that serves his purpose as a minister of the gospel. It's not that cities are more important. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the cities are, are more important than uh, the rural areas. But, but cities have a strategic value. Because they are gateways to the surrounding area. I, I think of it something like uh, planting grass in, in your backyard. You, you, you can bring in sod if you've got the money and the time. But, but if, you're, uh, if you are maybe uh, don't have the resources for that, you can sprig the grass. You can plant a little bit here and a little bit there. And you, plant, you expect it to fill in. Well, this is what Paul is, is doing with gospel ministry. He is sprigging churches throughout the land of Macedonia. And, and the, the idea is not that those churches would remain only in the cities, but that from the cities they would spread out into the surrounding area, that the region would be reached by planting churches in the city. It's a strategic decision. And it's a strategy that actually still guides the way that we do church planting today in the PCA. Scott prayed for our missions agency, Mission to, to North America. And here in the Tennessee Valley, uh, our Mission to North America committee seeks to plant churches in cities. The two main cities in our region are, are Chattanooga and Knoxville, and they have many churches. And now they are seeking to, to spread out from there into the surrounding areas. We're one of those churches. You know, we are just outside of, of, of Chattanooga, and a church in Chattanooga planted Trinity uh, some 25 years years ago. And there are churches that have been planted in Sweetwater to, to the north of us by churches in, in Knoxville. And now there's a joint effort to plant a church in Athens. And so we're, we're beginning to plant churches, but those are still cities. Those are still the, the seats of the county. And the hope is that eventually uh, from there, even more churches would be planted and more gospel ministry would, would go out into the rural communities. We hope one day that, that Bradley County will have more than one PCA church. We don't know when that will be. We don't know uh, exactly God's timeline, but that is our hope. We want to see ministry go out into the rural areas, but there's a, but there's a plan. There's a, a strategy, and it's similar to the strategy that, that Paul was following there uh, in Macedonia. What I want you to see about this strategy, what I want you to understand about this strategy is that this strategy shows us the importance of pursuing fruitfulness. Right? That, that's what I want you to see. Ministers of the gospel ought to be concerned about fruitfulness. We, we sometimes hear in our day that, that really our call is just to be faithful. It's God who gives the growth, right? We're just called to be faithful. God gives the, the growth. And there's something true about that. Who converts the sinner? Well, God converts the sinner. It is God who makes alive those who are dead. But he works through the ministers, the human agents, the, the ministers of the gospel whom he has called. He works through the churches that he has, has established. And I think Paul's strategy here 
suggests to us and teaches us that those ministers of the gospel, those whom God has called to do the work of his church, ought not to be, um, ought not to disregard the importance of strategy. They ought not to, they ought not to disregard the importance of, of doing things in the way most likely to bring forth fruit. When, when Arden and Austin go to Japan, they are going to do ministry in a way that is most likely to produce fruit in that context. They're not going to go there and do ministry the way you would do it here in Cleveland. They could, and they would be faithful. They'd be proclaiming the truth. But they would have no concern for fruitfulness. And I think the New Testament teaches us that as ministers of the gospel, we ought to be concerned with Fruitfulness. We ought to be concerned to minister in a way most likely to bring forth a harvest. Paul himself says this on, on numerous occasions. He, he writes to the Romans, listen, I want to come to you that I might reap a harvest among you. He doesn't want to just come and proclaim the gospel. He's concerned with the fruitfulness of his ministry there. He wants that. He wants his ministry there to, to bring forth a harvest. And he says in his letter to, to the Corinthians... That, that he actually adjusted his strategy depending on whom he was talking to. The Jews, he ministered like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he ministered like a, a Gentile. To those without the law, he ministered uh, like one without the law, though he knew himself not to be free of the law, but under the law of Christ. And so Paul was all things to all men. Why? That he might save as many as possible. He was concerned with fruitfulness. And so as we seek to be a congregation of Christ's church, here in Cleveland, we need to be concerned about fruitfulness. We need to seek to minister in a way most likely to build one another up towards maturity in Christ and to reach the members of our community who do not yet know him or do not yet understand what it means to call him Lord. I was at a, a symposium this week over at Lee, and they were, they were talking about, well, how does, what does faith look like in the public square? And, and this idea of, of contextualization, this, this idea of, of how do we minister in this community? How do we talk in such a way as to be understood by this generation? How do we talk in such a way as to be understood by, by people who, who are not familiar with the gospel? And I think that is a good endeavor. How do we talk to our neighbors? How do we talk to our children? How do we proclaim the gospel in a way that can be understood? We're not interested in just fulfilling our responsibility, checking off the box. We're, we're interested in proclaiming the gospel in such a way that people can hear it and that people can understand it and that people can, can taste the goodness of it and that people can be attracted to the beauty of our Lord and Savior. And so the first thing we see here in this text is the importance of pursuing fruitfulness. As I said, ultimately fruitfulness is, is not under our control. Ultimately, it is only God who can give the growth. But we want to minister in a way that is most likely to produce growth. We want to minister in a way that seeks to maximize the harvest. So what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm not going to get into all the, the details this morning, but I want you to know that the elders and the, and, the, and the deacons, as we think about doing ministry here, this is on our radar. This is our concern. How, not just how do we remain faithful and check that box, but how do we remain faithful in the way most likely to produce fruit in the place where God has planted us? 
And we want you to have that same concern as you seek to be an ambassador of the gospel in your neighborhood and at your workplace. How can we be faithful ministers of the gospel, faithful ministers of reconciliation in a way most likely to communicate the truth and the, and the goodness of the truth to those whom God has woven into the fabric of our lives. So this is the, the first thing I want you to see. It's just that decision to go to Thessalonica. It's a strategic decision. It's a, it's a decision aimed at fruitfulness. And it implores us to have the same goal as we undertake our ministry. The second thing I want you to see is the decision to go to the synagogue. Because this is also a, a strategic decision. I mentioned Paul's conversion re recorded for us back in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, as I said, uh, Paul is, is knocked off his horse and he is called to gospel ministry. But do you remember the specifics of that calling? What is Paul called to do specifically? He is called specifically to take the gospel to the nations. He's called specifically to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is, is the apostle to the circumcised. Paul is the apostle to the uncircumcised. He is an apostle to the Gentiles by God's explicit direction. And yet, this apostle to the Gentiles begins his ministry in Thessalonica. And we'll see in the, throughout the book of Acts, almost everywhere he goes... He begins his ministry by going first to the synagogue, going first to the, that place where the, the Jews were, were gathered for worship. Why? Why would the apostle to the Gentiles go first to the Jews? Well, we know that, that Paul had a personal reason to go first to the Jews. He, he tells us in, in Romans chapter 10 of his, his deep love for his kinsmen and of his desire to, to see them come to the faith. He has a, a personal desire to see the Jews converted. But he's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his God-given job. Why didn't he trust Peter to, to do that work? Well... Because he also has a theological reason. Yes, he has a, a personal desire to, to see the Jews saved, but he also has a, a theological reason for going first to the Jews. Because he does not want to begin his ministry of the gospel in Thessalonica with the idea that, that the Jews have been rejected, that the gospel is not for them. He, he does not want to give the impression that, that somehow this gospel that he is proclaiming is, is God's plan B. That in the Old Testament, God had, had chosen the Jews for himself and that they had been unfaithful so that he had now set aside that plan. He had set aside uh, that means of redemption and now he was doing something new in Christ to save the nations. No. He wanted to proclaim as clearly as he could that Jesus Christ is the, pro is the fulfillment of all of the promises made to the Old Testament people of God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, of the promises even made all the way back as far as the garden. When God chose to redeem for himself a people, he chose to do it through the Jews. The Jews were his, his instrument. That the salvation that he was accomplishing through the Jews was not for the Jews only. Even at the very beginning, when God calls Abraham to himself, he says, I am going to bless you that through you all the families of the earth might be blessed. 
And so Paul wants to proclaim that God has been faithful to his promise. He has been faithful to his promise to provide a a Savior through the Jews. And that salvation is for the Jews. It is open to any and all Jews who will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as the long-promised Messiah. And that matters. That, That has significance. Because think about it. If God abandoned the promises that he made to Abraham, if God abandoned the the promises to to bring salvation through Abraham's seed, if God was doing something new and different in Jesus, something unrelated to his, his previous work of redemption, then what would that teach us about God and his character? What would that teach us about God's faithfulness? No, the fact that God is faithful to his promises, even though his people have been unfaithful. The fact that God is working salvation through the the Jewish Messiah, even though the the Jews have rejected him, it shows us that God is a God who is faithful. God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who does what he says he will do. And in Jesus Christ, all of his promises are yes and amen. The Jews may reject it. We're going to look more next week at the the response to Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica. But what we see this morning is that Paul is beginning with the Jews because the gospel is from the Jews. It's, It's to the Gentiles. But the gospel is for the Jews first. And if the Jews were excluded, if the gospel was no longer open to them, then the gospel would not be the gospel. The gospel would not be the the, the promised salvation of a faithful God, of a God who always keeps his promises. And again, I, I think this is instructive to us as we think about how we go about gospel ministry. Salvation is in Christ alone, and it is for all nations. You don't have to become a Jew be saved. You don't have to become an American to be saved. Who is it in our context that that we tend to think of as as outside the scope of the gospel? Who is it that we tend to think needs to repent not only of their sins but of their culture if they are going to be saved? How often do do we put cultural uh, expressions on top of the gospel as we seek to call people to faith in the Savior? This is what Paul has shown us we cannot do. The Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles. They do not have to become Jews. Yes, the gospel is for the the Jews as Jews, and it's for the Gentiles as Gentiles. The gospel is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ for all nations. And this is what we must remember as we seek to do gospel ministry, as we seek to proclaim the gospel. There was a, a time when Western missionaries tended to believe that, that the, the, the people to whom they were sent needed to become Western in order to truly be Christian because in their minds they, they couldn't divide the two. And I've, I've seen uh, you know, ministries in, in Africa and in, and in Asia where, where the campus of the church or the, or the Christian school looks like it was picked up out of you know, uh, the uh, suburban America and dropped in the middle of, of Africa. For the most part, we know better today. <laughs> We, we, we recognize the, the problems with that approach to ministry. But we must recognize that, that we sometimes suffer from the same thing. 
And we must be prepared to proclaim the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, apart from our normal way of doing things. The gospel is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, we see that in Paul's method. I don't have time to, to fully un, unpack this, and we'll come back to it next, uh, next Sunday. But, but again, notice what Paul is doing as he goes into the synagogue, he is arguing from the scriptures. He's, he's honoring the fact that, that, that this is the story that God's been telling from the beginning. And he is showing that that story leads to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the story. The gospel is the good news of God concerning his son. Because it is in the son. It is in Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God come in human flesh, that salvation is accomplished, that death is defeated, that our guilt is dealt with. And the promise of the gospel is that any and all who receive and rest upon him alone for their salvation, they shall be saved. They shall never be put to shame. This is the gospel that has been entrusted to us. This is the gospel that we now have the opportunity to share with our neighbors. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter their, their heritage. They are offered salvation in Jesus Christ. And you have the opportunity to share that good news with them. You can, you can do it yourself. You can invite them to, to the church to come and hear more. But we can proclaim a gospel of salvation to any and all who will receive. Because the gospel proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. Come in human flesh to redeem all nations. And because we have such a gospel to proclaim, because such a treasure has been entrusted to us, and because we not only believe it but get to share it, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of this gospel. We thank you that you have given us eyes to, to see Jesus and ears to, uh, to, to hear the good news of what he has done and hearts to believe it and, and rest in it and that in him we have new life. And we pray, Father, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this gospel to all those whom you have woven into the fabric of our life. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.